Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. In just a few moments, Robin and Josie will be joined by Yasmin Khan to talk about her new book, which is part recipe book and part non-fiction book. It is called Ripe Figs, Recipes and Stories from the Eastern Mediterranean, and it is out now. Before we get to that, thanks as always go to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is the URL if you would like to go and sign up and Support the podcast in a financial way. Not only do you help us out uh, in making the show and especially, obviously, this year, as I always say, when uh, live gigs are still a few months away at best, but you also get access to lots of other goodies, including the Tips for Existence series in which Robin chats to all sorts of people about what gives them meaning, from Tim Minchin to Brian Green to Sarah Kendall, Andre and Neil Gaiman... Nicole Stott and loads more and also the uh, An Uncanny Hour documentary podcast series where we are joined by lots of guests in a documentary format to talk about the weird and uncanny elements of culture. We've looked at films like The Thing and Dead of Night, books like I Am Legend, the music of Hawkwind, phenomenon of uh, belief in alien visitation uh, so you get those as being a Patreon supporter, plus lots of other stuff as well, like extended editions of Book Shambles each and every week. Oh, and also, last thing to mention, Joanna Neary's comedy podcast series, Wife on Earth, is back this week for Series 3. The first episode has gone out already. Search for Wife on Earth wherever you get podcasts or go to cosmicshambles.com slash Celia and you will find all the links that you need to listen there. Anyway, let's get on with the show. Here is Robin and Josie and Yasmin. Oh, seriously, thank you so much for doing it. And thank you for your book. It's beautiful. It's such a lovely artefact to own. I love it. We should say, yeah, Ripe Figs. It's such an interesting... Have you come across... I think I've shown it to you, uh, Josie, a book called The Holocaust Survivor's Cookbook. Oh, yes. We talked about it. It's just such a... Because that's one of the things that reminded me, you know, that and your book, this book where food, the connection, and, and it is... I mean, the Holocaust Survivors Cookbook, which I've any, and I'm not sure if it's still in print. Anyone listening, I really would recommend it because, because you know, sometimes they are memories of people who died in the Holocaust and sometimes they're people who survived. But all... It, it's, there's such sometimes very, very small details, but it is in the tininess of the detail, not, the, not this incredibly expansive history. It's the smallness of the detail. And, and that, I felt very much was well can you just tell when did you first start thinking about creating that connection of of people's stories and struggle with also the you know these these beautiful and and, and wonderful recipes um well i guess i first started thinking about this about seven years ago when i started writing my first book um i was in iran at the time and actually no, it was 2012 so it was like quite intense sanctions had hit iran my family um, my mother's side of the family uh, iranian um you know medicines are running out kind of there were food shortages and i spent a few months there and then kind of came back to the uk 
and you know at that point I was you know I was working for the charity War on Want so you know I was kind of just doing general NGO work on human rights in in the Middle East and I, and I came back and, and I started talking to my friends about what had happened or what I'd experienced. And I started realizing there was a huge gulf between the Iran that I knew and then what, you know, very kind of well-educated liberal people in London were asking me about what my experiences was. And um, it was then that I had this like nugget of an idea of perhaps there was a way of, you know, taking my human rights work and, and broadening it into sharing stories from places of conflict and doing it through a really unifying theme, such as food, which we can all relate to. Um, because, you know, I, I then did a book on Palestine called Zaytun. Again, I, I used to work on Israel-Palestine when I was at War and Want. Hugely difficult subject to talk about, you know, hugely difficult subject to work on, hugely difficult issue that, you know, people are living through. And it's a topic that I always found in my human rights work that would just make people tense up a bit when you talk about Israel-Palestine. It's like, oh, where's it going to go? What, what's going to be said? And so if you could just strip away all of that and start sharing people's stories that you've cooked with, that you've eaten with, share life experiences, share stories that celebrate our commonality instead of our difference, then you have this space in which perhaps to have a few more challenging conversations. And, you know, I kind of say it, but it's a cliche, but it's true that some of the best places to have those difficult conversations are over the dining table. Mm. See, that's such an, because what you were saying there as well, which is that so often, so many different parts of the world, all we see of people is people either as victims or perpetrators. And and so that's what, you know, the, 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 there's so many nations in Africa where the fact that most people have, you know, a life like a normal family, like our, and I think that otherness seems to be one of the huge problems and, and certainly a huge problem with refugees is to create, I've, I've seen some incredible pieces of work uh, and we've, we've talked about it before, uh, often, in fact, that fantastic book by Yana Teller, War, I don't know if you've seen it, where she always rewrites the for each country what would it be like if you suddenly became a refugee but but that's what i think is so great about about your book is it is a way of getting rid of the otherness absolutely i mean you've hit the nail on the head really with my mission um there's a great quote that i have at the beginning of zaytun uh, which is that and it's an old jewish proverb apparently i mean who knows but that's what i was told that um an enemy is just a person whose story you haven't heard yet and it's such a simple line but i think it's so true and it's so powerful and you know i've done so much work on the middle east over the years and it's exactly as you say it's either kind of refugees or you know terrorists that's kind of the, not refugees kind of yeah perhaps refugees and terrorists but like it's this victim sorry or, or terrorist mentality and i always say to people you know well, you know muhammad isn't always one of those things sometimes he's just kicking back watching netflix eating a cookie like you know it's just that simple and so i try and get behind some of those those stories of course this book ripe figs is a bit different because i do delve into a topic which is about a lot of people being in crisis mm. but you know what i try to do always is again really show the resilience and strength and hope and optimism that exists within these really fraught spaces because like there's a role for positive stories in the world and I think we need good stories in order to help us stay motivated to perhaps change the world in the direction I'd like to see it changed in yeah and I, I what I really well one of the things I really love about the book and I always relate everything to humor but like for me it's it's the only other way that I think you can or the only one of the only other ways that I've seen in life or found in life that you can uh, get more this is exactly what you said i'm just saying what you said but like because people are attracted by the food because the food is wonderful the fact that you can then in this 
ostensible cookbook have such uh, real and sophisticated conversations about migration and about um, uh, what makes people move or choose to move or have to move, that kind of thing. I think it's such a wonderful achievement and, and I think it's the perfect vehicle for it as well. And I think about it with the stand-up show where, you know, the the thing is always, oh, if you're getting people laughing, then you can subvert what they're expecting and get things in there. And I suppose it's another way that through a kind of something that is fellowship, you can be like, and also, by the way, this. Um, totally. And it's the it... power of art, isn't it, really? Yes, and that's truly. what I love about the arts, you know, it's the, it can hits us on all the, all our senses and food is perhaps the most visceral sensory experience you can have. I mean, you literally taste and smell and feel. Um, so I think it's a really great medium for connecting. And did you set out with this book? Were you, did you feel you had kind of the part of you that was wanting to be a food writer and the part of you that was wanting to be a political writer and how did they interact as you put it together? It's a very good question. Um, yeah, I think I, I, there definitely were a few moments in writing the book where I was just like, okay, well, like, I, I mean, what, how can I, how can I pay, how can I, you know, pay tribute to actually the realities of what's going on in a way that isn't going to I mean, put people off their food or put people, you know, make people feel so depressed that, you know, they they feel that, you know, that it isn't celebratory. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just an artistic tightrope that I walked. But um, the way I think I try and write all of my books is to just tell the truth. And the reality is the truth isn't all doom and gloom in any situation. Mm. You know, you might be going through like the worst breakup of your life and you'll still be able to find a moment of, of you know joy with your friends or you might be in a refugee camp you know having an incredibly frightening experience but still you have the connection of the people you've met or yeah. you've you know shared a delicious meal with someone or you've read a bit of somebody's reading some poetry and it warms your heart for a moment yeah. so I just try and write about the sum of the human experience because so much travel writing, especially food writing, it's so nauseating for me. It's just like, you know, and it's just here in the UK, I feel that it, food writing is like this. In the US, food writing is seen as a bit more of a serious genre. Mm. Whereas here, it's just all like, hey, I'm in a market and it's like incredible <laughs> and I'm having the time of my life. And oh my God, this tomato is incredible. And maybe but some travel's really rubbish like we've all been away sometimes <laughs> and you're like in a really terrible hotel and like the weather's bad or you're just having a tough time in your life so you're walking the streets of somewhere beautiful and it feels like you, you know your life is collapsing so yeah that's what I like to do I guess and once you just commit yourself as a writer to writing about the sum of the human experience then it doesn't matter if one page makes someone laugh and one page makes, mm -hmm. makes someone cry because you've got the freedom I think artistically to go there yeah, because that is life. That is being realistic. And I, I think it is so important to think that there are these moments of lightness and levity in every circumstance. That's when I talk about climate change with people and try to feel hopeful, I always feel like, but to be human is in enduring and desperately fighting against things is to like also have a jokey look with your friend at the same time. Like that is the essence of what it is to be human. And I think it's so important. I was wondering when you were just talking there about in in terms of the the kind of the 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 English tradition of talking about cooking is and I don't know if this is true or not I mean I love the, the other day I was I was rifling through a great big stack of secondhand books and I found one of those really broken old 60s cookbooks which someone had left there typed 
recipes for cauliflower oh. cheese in there and stuff and they always and when oh. you do pick those up or you know I, I think that when my mother died and going through all of those books and those little kind of you know where the the, the file cards were and the recipe oh, cards yeah. were but we don't seem to have or maybe I don't realize this but it doesn't feel like there's that same tradition of um of the stories that go with the food there, and, there isn't traditionally I think an in, in British food writing. I think it's it's developing, um, but certainly not in that same way. And we'll see where it goes, you know. I think uh, a lot of the writers that I feel inspired by are in the US, whether it's Ruth Reichel, um, who was ex a New York Times food critic and then editor of Gourmet, obviously Anthony Bourdain. Mm -hmm. um, just they have a tradition of long form of, of using food to tell the story of who we are, because I think that's what excites me about food writing. You know, when I kind of go to a country or a place, you know, when I write about the food, I'm not just learning or sharing with people, you know, a set of ingredients. It's about, you know, talking about a country. When you learn about a place, a country's food, you're learning about their history. You're mm -hmm. learning about their um, economy, perhaps their geography, you know, certainly their gender relations in terms of who's cooking. Um, you know, so there's, there's so many things that food can tell you. Uh, yeah, and, and it's just so much, I think, yeah, I think we're limited a bit here in the UK with like, here's a great cake. And it's great. Where does that go? <laughs> and is it because we had crap food? I mean, you know, it, is, <laughs> it has always been the great tradition of, of looking at a menu from 1948 and imagining that mixture of brown Windsor soup and gristle and some kind of, you know, something made from the as a pudding that's pink from a cow's stomach lining, you know, all of those things. And and then, then that strange revolution that came where they went, oh, rationing's finally over, you know, 10 years after the war so let's put a pineapple on everything the glass of cherry and then you go oh god this and is then the worst of all worlds go to the chemist and ask for olive oil you shall yeah. be using it in cooking <laughs> but that that it does feel like we're, we're quite odd it, we've only recently caught up mm. or beginning to catch up we have yeah it's interesting and then it's funny isn't it i kind of feel I wonder if like how because food is so, so trendy at the moment isn't it like you, you come off Love Island and I feel and you've got like a cookbook coming out or something yeah. it's just so like, every, it's just everybody's doing it so I always feel like I always say to people like when I was in my 20s everyone wanted to be a DJ now everybody <laughs> wants to you know be a food writer or you know do be a food person so I don't know I do wonder how long the bubble will last you know how many of that because it's interesting when you look at like the stats on cookbooks you know most people when they want to cook a recipe you just google the ingredients you have maybe look on the BBC website or Jamie mm. Oliver or Nigella whoever your person is and then you find the recipe um, apparently people cook on average just you know a few recipes from most of the cookbooks they buy so it's interesting I think yeah for me who tries to make my books obviously banging recipes in there but mm. also books that have a wider mission um, which I think is why they've done quite well actually because just reading about I don't know potatoes on their own can only so yeah, interesting. it's only going so far. And I do think, like, the cookbooks that I've really loved and connected with, I, yeah, I, I'm buying them because I do like the idea of cooking the food, but I'm really buying them because they're a beautiful piece of art and they are somebody, you know, it's getting to know the author and it's getting to know why they've made that. And so, like, yeah, I'm thinking of, like, your book. And also I really enjoyed recently um, Midnight Chicken by Ella mm. Risperger because it was so book. full of love and it was so beautifully written as well. And, like, yeah, you're right. Like, I've possibly, like, only done a couple of, of the recipes, but 
it's not about that. It's about wanting that in my kitchen near me and wanting to have it and that to be a part of my world. Um, oh, my my favourite was the moose. Do you know the Moosewood cookbook? Oh, I love the Moosewood cookbook. I was given that oh. when I was about eighteen years old. Hang on, old. tell me more about this because I've not heard it. Of it, this. it was a vegetarian restaurant in 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 the states, and I think they did a few of them. But uh, my friends Carolyn and Heather got me this book, and my mum. It was just when I become vegetarian, so my mum would go, well, "Let's have a look, and I'll see what I can make oh. you." And there was, there was one particular um, cauliflower dish that was reasonably simple but really delicious and uh, and and that would always be the one it was like you know everyone else uh you're having this ham and i've made <laughs> you you know or, and uh, another lovely one is it's though i wouldn't cook that much for me the george bernard shaw cookbook have you come across this what? <laughs> no tell me more he was um it was his housekeeper uh, and because he was vegetarian in a time where there weren't many you know people who were vegetarian by choice possibly by poverty but not by choice um and it was just all of the things that she made for and you really got the sense that every wow. single one was written on a piece of brown parcel paper because it had that it's exactly what you kind of imagine what's it like being a vegetarian well it's not very nice <laughs> everything's gray it has that real and, and i can't remember what the puddings were but i they, they lacked a certain level of joie de vivre. <laughs> wow. Well, I've got a good um, cookbook story as well. So I interviewed Jerry Adams a couple of years ago about his cookbook. Do you know Jerry Adams wrote a cookbook? What? <laughs> no. True story. I feel like in his <laughs> retirement, he really is trying to do as many curveballs as possible. <laughs> like he just, wow. So I went to Ireland, and yeah, it's true. So it's, so you know, it's not a you know, with so many jokes you can make about. Jerry Adams's cookbook and what would be in it but no it's genuinely food and it's the stories of the recipes that got them through the priest process so it's also stories of when they were like negotiating the good friday agreement and yeah and I went to Ireland and we and I cooked with him and we made a potato salad and we talked about the peace process it's great so you know who's going to be next who's the next person bringing out a cookbook me bring out a cookbook is so much less of a curveball than Jerry Adams bringing out a cookbook. <laughs> like, it's so interesting. And it, like, you know, like you've been saying, it's such an interesting way to break into a world. Um, it is. I never be... thought I'd be cooking with Jerry Adams, yeah, about discussing his cookbook. It was very surreal. It's one of the most surreal interviews I've ever done in my life. Do you know, I would love to see a show that was you cooking with lots of difficult, controversial figures. <laughs> like, just go I'd love around. that too, <laughs> if anyone's <laughs> listening. Yeah. God, that would yeah, be fantastic. Be I'd, I'd love to know more, um, well, firstly, more cookbooks that you've loved uh, throughout your life. Like, which ones have been kind of most, like, affecting to you? Sure. Well, it was so nice for Robin to mention the Moosewood cookbook, actually, because I'd forgotten that, but I love that. If anybody, that's by Molly Katz, and she, um, yeah, it's just brilliant. Uh, but I think the books that influenced me are ones with lots of writing in them. So, I mean, it, it's very well known, but Claudia Roden's Book of Jewish Food is just a phenomenal piece of work you know it's a phenomenal piece of research it's just incredible writing I mean it fits in quite often with the themes that I have in in this book actually because it's about the Jewish diaspora in the broadest sense and the recipes yeah. that fed you know different you know Jewish communities and oh it's it's the, the storytelling in it's just incredible so I love that book that was a big influence with the saffron tales I'm gonna look at my bookshelf now <laughs> and kind of like see which other ones I really love um so I really 
love a, well I mean I love a lot of travel cookbooks so I'm also going to go for um where is she I can't wait where is it I'm going looking I can't remember her name Paula Paula Wolfart Wolfert. She wrote the Book of Morocco. She's a really famous American food writer and she's written books on the Eastern Mediterranean. And she was kind of traveling on her own as a woman, um, wow. you know, throughout these countries in like the 70s, which is quite a big thing, kind of traveling across North Africa and, yeah. and in the 60s. And again, her books are, I mean, the food's fantastic, but just the stories of just this incredibly adventurous woman are really great. Um, obviously love Yotam, who doesn't? Like, you know, great recipes, can't go wrong. Love Samin Nusrat. Um, <gasps> that book, that book taught me how to cook. I, like, day number one, open it up. You are not putting enough salt on anything. Oh, put salt on stuff. Oh, I mean, everything I, I cook is delicious. <laughs> I feel, I feel like that is just what, you know, I mean, I am British, so I don't want to mock my own people, but I feel like that is just the number one tip for the people in this country. Just add salt, add salt. It's fine. I thought I was, you know. Stop thinking you're doing. eating too much salt by adding a teaspoon to your meal. The packet oh. of crisps you just ate had like eight teaspoons of salt in them. I would have dreamt of putting a teaspoon of salt in. I would have done, uh, here's, here's me adding salt. Here's a tiny little pinch. There we go, put some salt in. Now, get the meat out, salt all over it, veg. Chuck the salt in. Let's, oh gosh, sorry. That book I thought was absolutely fantastic and such an introduction to thinking conceptually about levels of flavor and thinking conceptually about which parts of the world use what things at different levels of flavor. Like in, in her book, I'm just saying this for listeners, but there's that there's a wheel where you can put together your own kind of creations thinking about, okay, I'd like to use flavors influenced by Vietnam. So let me see what they would use as bases and what they would use as spice and heat. Wow, well, I, I felt like it was such a generous exercise on, on her behalf as well. Yeah, sorry to interrupt. I just no, had to infuse. It. No, it's great. I think she's great. But yeah, they're my top. Yeah. Is, is do you think one of the things that I wonder about the change in English cooking or, or maybe it's just my own terrible cooking because I, I'm trying to remember one of the first times that the, uh, my wife came back to to where I lived at the time I remember that thinking I'll cook some pasta and I'll probably put in some plum tomatoes and I'll stick some yogurt in and, I, and you just kind of put everything that's in the fridge in and she's from an Italian background so very quickly you find out that maybe three things are all you need for a minute you can actually make yeah. something out you know with, with, with a decent pasta it doesn't take much more and you've got a meal and I don't know if that, that might just be my terrible cooking or it might, I, it did feel like that kind of English thing to just, just put things in and something will come out of it all. Hope for the best, exactly. <laughs> um, I had a housemate like that. Sorry. No, no. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Um, I think that perhaps what I find is that a lot of people don't feel very confident in the kitchen. Maybe it's that, you know, there's this sense that... Um, I really try and approach my time in the kitchen with a bit of playfulness and yeah, not going all in, but just, you know, experimenting a little bit. And I always say that like my number one tip is you can add, but you cannot take away. Mm. So, you know, just go really, go easy. You can do stuff in stages. You can add stuff in stages and taste it. And the, no the other tip is you just need to be tasting your food all the time at the beginning, in the middle and at the end. I've got friends that serve food and they're like, oh yeah, I didn't even taste it. I don't know if the seasoning's okay. And I'm like, probably not, is it? It's probably not. How would it be? You know, so <laughs> taste your food, people. 
But yes, does anything so, taste... Her? Sorry, Josie. No, no, I was going to say it's so funny because it's one of those things that is so basic and yet it's so not done. And and it's it's almost like if you were painting a painting, you would look at the painting during the painting. You wouldn't be like, well, I haven't looked at it, so it could be of a horse, but I don't know because I wasn't looking. Like, that's what it is. It's like, why would you not just test it? Sorry, Robin, I got, I got excited. No, no, no. I, I, I kind of feel because I always think when I've, I've cooked, it never tastes right to me, and it is that it's that <laughs> thing that, that Woody Allen said. But, but other people, it, it's fine. But if you have it, I think Woody Allen said it, it, it. The reason he never watched his movies was because it's like a, a chef. All he can taste is that he thinks there's too much basil in it. And I think that is, you know, that's one of those. It doesn't mean you've made the wrong thing, but you always go, "Is this tasteless? Maybe it is tasteless." You know, and it's fine. But that the, the paranoia in the kitchen. I think you may well be right there, Yasmin, as, as part of the, the the malaise of English cooking. Well, you just need to try a few of the recipes from Right Figs, don't you, Robin, and see if you can restore your confidence in the kitchen. No, do you know what? Actually, I am reasonably confident, but I don't do structure. And I like that about mm. your book is pretty good. There's not too much of that because I think there's far too much structure in, in a lot of cooking where you go, oh, yeah, no, that looks amazing. Well done. You, you've architecturally made a fantastic model of a, of a thing, but then it's about to be immediately demolished. And I like it when you just go, here's the things. Here they are. Now eat them. And, and I, yeah. I, I, I think we've become a bit overly obsessed with the architectural quality of food. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I think another reason why my books probably do quite well is, you know, I'm a home cook. You know, I'm not like mm. trained in a restaurant or I've not worked in a restaurant for years. So uh, most of my recipes, in fact, all of my recipes are things that... Uh, I know are very easy to whip up for me, someone with no training, so therefore probably fine for you as well, whether it's stuff that you've probably got in the store cupboards and, you know, you can get a lovely like tin of tomatoes and some beans and, you know, get it, you know, get some vibrant paprika and oregano and garlic in there and it'll be delicious or, you know, a nice twist on a roast chicken with Mediterranean flavours, stuff that's basically quite homely. I mean, that's what I try and do in the recipes. Is there any of, of the recipes in Ripe Figs? Is there is there anyone in particular that really has, perhaps even when you finish the book, has now started to stand out as that one that has created that moment of uh, of, of conversation that that you've really felt it kind of that that mixture of of, of, of eating and conversation in action. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple actually. Um, I think one of them was one i wrote about quite recently in the guardian it was for this recipe for a roast chicken um the the recipe is like a pomegranate and sumac roasted chicken it's kind of inspired by the flavors like of syrian food but the reason i put it in the book was because i ate it right a version of it when i was in lesvos in greece um where some of the largest european kind of refugee camps are so it was kind of, I, I was in Greece and, and there was this um, doctor from Syria, Mam, uh, Mahmoud uh, Tuli, who had been on the island for a number of years and uh, many, many people are, are stuck on, on Lesvos for a huge, I mean, like anything from like a year and a half to like three years waiting for um, papers, um, if they even get any. Um, so he decided to set up a restaurant uh, uh, to just kind of like pass the time. And yeah, it was something I ate there. And so there's this weird thing of how, you know, we kind of imagine the Greek islands being a certain way and, you know, tucking into Greek salad or 
you know, some calamari, but actually even the food of the islands is changing because, you know, Lesbos, for example, is an island which had a population of 40,000 and a million refugees have passed through there over six years. Like, that's just like a huge number. You know, not all of them obviously stayed in the camps. Many of them just passed through, but many did stay in the camps and have stayed for many years. So, yeah, that was a recipe that just had so many stories around it. Um, and then another one, oh, there's loads, but I think there's this, probably one of my favorite recipes in the book is for this uh, hot yogurt soup that I had in Istanbul, which is kind of, you know, yogurt um, cooked in like a lovely stock or like you know, cooked with stock and rice and flavored with dried mint and pulbebear, which is this kind of quite fruity, chili flake from uh, the west of Turkey. And, and I, I ate it with this woman called Berek, who is a publisher of Kurdish descent, Turkish Kurdish. And we had this great conversation where I was just like, right, okay, the Kurdish issue, let's talk about it. What, you know, I need to, I need to understand it. What's the solution, da, da, da. I don't know, the, you know my, the, my, the main driver behind writing this book is, for me was the fact that, uh, you know, for the last, decade or more um increasingly so kind of concept you know the discussions around borders and migration mm -hmm. and nation states have just um have just been amplified haven't they on both sides of the atlantic whether it was trump um with a lot of his policies being focused on that whether it was brexit here whether it's the rise of the far right and within european governments um whether it's kind of you know that you know and i think it's really important to remember that throughout human history our concepts of nation states are very recent historical mm. constructs. Mm -hmm. We know we're looking at a couple of hundred years, maybe a few more than a couple of hundred, you know, we're looking at 500 years or so over thousand, you know, mm -hmm. and before that, when we were living more under empires and people had more freedom of movement, um, some of, you know, the issues that I think that we are grappling with, you know, don't, weren't, you know, at the forefront of, of discussions in that way. And again, I am an optimist, but I am, quite worried about what the next 100 to 200 years is going to look like if the climate scientists are to be believed and why would why would they be lying we're going to see you know the world bank predicts that by 2050 we're going to see about 150 million climate refugees many ngos say that that is a very conservative estimation of what will happen 2050 isn't that far away you know and what does that mean when those people start moving and how do we um how you know i i, I have you read exit west no who's it by and tell me oh more. my goodness okay it it was the book that inspired this book actually wow. so if, if you like this book you should read that it should have won the booker prize in 2018 um milkman won it instead so exit west by mohsin hamid is about this it's about a dystopic future it's a really beautiful short novella really poetically written about a dystopic future where the climate crisis has happened and refugees are moving and we've got refugees in london and we've got people just we've got very militarized borders everywhere san francisco is full of shanty towns from people that have moved and it's really interesting because i mean yeah maybe that won't happen but people are going to move and we as a as a as a as a human species are going to have to really think hard about what that means and i will just finish my ted talk on this by saying that it's really important to remember that for the whole of human history 
our species has migrated. Yeah, mm. we've migrated for our own survival, whether that's been um, migration because um, of you know agricultural reasons where we need to move because certain land has changed, whether it's migration um, because of, of conflict. You know, um, to migrate in my mind is part of what it means to be human. And you, you know, and therefore this idea that what is going on at the moment is kind of wrong or unnatural or you know something to be resisted. That is, I think, something that I would like to completely turn on its head. Well, I can I completely agree. And also it, it frustrates me so much the deliberate pretense that, you know, that the climate crisis hasn't been brought about, you know, and known about for so long. And that, you know, the uh, political um, unrest uh, in the Middle East hasn't been brought about by like uh, the interventions of other like countries. Like it's it's all built into this complete kind of false uh way of talking about it that's all about now as if there's nothing's been caused by anything but also it's just the utter pretense that climate change isn't a global crisis that won't affect all of us because you know i i think when i moved to scotland i thought to myself oh wow wow i'm moving north a bit and that to me feels like a wise decision with regard to climate change as if what what scotland would just be this little island that'll be fine and you know it's so it's so silly not to think totally. about it in terms of every human being on earth and in terms of all of us collectively you know if one country in europe is great at cutting its carbon emissions that is great but if nobody else on earth is doing it you know if america's not fucking doing it like yeah i i think it's um I, it's another reason why your book is so timely and important because it's talking about these things and it's you know starting a conversation I would hope with people who perhaps might not be thinking about it. Absolutely. Um, and and on that point, I, I, for me, yeah, I think that just the narratives around this, this topic are just completely devoid from reality. Because let's not forget, for the wealthy in the world, borders aren't an issue oh, at all no. and for yeah so you know in Cyprus there's a perfect example a section of the book is on Cyprus so you know on the one hand you have migrants making dangerous journeys over choppy waters you know arriving on Cyprus and then being put in a camp and maybe they'll get into maybe they'll be given status maybe they won't maybe they'll be sent back on the other hand if you have two million euros you can buy you can invest in Cyprus and you'll be given an EU passport just like that so um and for people like us you know we've got you know British passports I presume and um you know we we can travel freely throughout the world you know not having even to have visas in many bits of the world so you know all Already we have, it's not that people don't move, it's that we're not okay with certain people moving. Mm. But the reality is, because of the way the global economic system works, as, lo as, uh, as long as we continue to have this huge gulf, gulf between um, the rich, yeah, the, the rich and the poor, but as, as soon as we have this huge wage inequality that also exists between the global south and the global north, people are going to move for a, a better life. You know, mm -hmm. that's just inevitable. Um, so there's all kinds of stuff, you know, if you want to get to the root causes of migration, because, you know, I, I often say to people, you know, it's not that I'm saying, oh, I just think everyone should move all everywhere and that's great. You know, in an ideal situation, nobody would be forced to leave their homes no one would have to be forced if you're you know an immigrant coming from like I don't know the Ivory Coast you know getting you know smuggling your way through Libya and and you know most of these are young young lads looking for jobs you know because there's no no work because things are quite fraught um you know where they live you know ideally you want to get to a situation where people don't feel that they have to move because of either conflicts that we've armed or instigated or because of economic policies which are keeping people in positions of poverty and um, I 
I'd love to ask you just quickly before we finish a little bit about books you might have read, um, more political books that you might have read that you'd really recommend that you really enjoyed, particularly recently as well. Oh, and I have one more question about travel yeah. writing as well. So I want this one. All right. Oh, that's a very good question. Um, political books. I haven't read a lot of political books recently, actually, but I can... I don't know. Well, what have you read recently that you've really loved? I've, for the last year, I've just been reading novels nonstop. I've just like, that has been my pandemic journey, just reading so many novels um, all the time, which has been great. So I really loved, I just spotted up there, Rumen Alarm's Leave the World Behind. Have you read that? Not yet. I'm, Very I'm good. Notes. Take notes of that. I uh, really loved Kylie Reed's Such a Fun oh, Age. I absolutely loved it. I, yeah. I thought it felt so current and so funny and so beautifully observed I just yeah that was a really good one um there's a great book actually by Sonia Shah which continues on the themes of this my book this podcast called the next great migration and that's all about the themes of, of how people have always moved so yeah they've been really good what else have I read I've read so much of, of late um Oh, I read Circe, but like everyone's read that, but I only just got round to reading it and it's just like incredible. So they've been my favourite novels. It's just, it's just, yeah, it's a feminist retelling of Odyssey and of the oh, Odyssey wow. and it's just incredible by Madeline Miller. Yeah. This is, these are good tips. So the last question I wanted to ask, which is, I think it's, it's possibly too silly, but do you have parts of the world that you yearn to visit, particularly from a food point of view? And like from a food writing point of view, do you have places that you've not yet been that you're like, there? Yes, definitely. Um, Vietnam, ah. definitely up there. I spend quite a lot of time in Thailand or I used to in the before times. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, so over the last decade, there's, there's kind of been a place that I kind of go to every year in Thailand. But um, so East Asia, I've spent quite a lot of time in, but Vietnamese food just seems like this incredible, bright, herb packed, fiery, treat so I'd, I'd love to explore that and then I've never been to Lebanon and I you know the food's supposed to be fantastic and also just I think the history and the culture and the politics so that's very interesting nice. because you know obviously your book is like so many places so new. I know I've been to everywhere but Lebanon in but the how region. come how come it didn't come up as part of this book it's I just think Lebanon is its own story I just sure. think it's such a rich specific history and there was a there was a book I wanted to do and I mean maybe I will do it at some point I wanted to start it last year but obviously with the pandemic which sure. like this year was the 10 years of the Arab Spring so I wanted to do it last year wow. where I start traveling through North Africa in the countries that you can go um yeah. looking at 10 years on and, and food and youth culture but oh my know. god I whenever, would love that book whenever we can travel again that's what I want to do because it would start in Tunisia where the Arab Spring started um and also which has been a relative success story Tunisia in terms of its transition to democracy but yeah we'll see Watch what's this. the um it's the um Egyptian dish is it kashari that's every yeah. carb that's yeah. my that's the, the first thing I was like of course you'd be having kashari in there of course that's very important definitely definitely <laughs> well, um do you know um, I uh, Vietnam is one of the few places where I've been in Asia and I um, had the best meal of my life in an alleyway on a plastic chair on my own in the middle of the day. But like, it was the best. Anyway, sorry. 
That's good. Well, good. We, be- we better end there and to say, uh, right, figs, it's a well, it, it fulfills that thing, doesn't it? Have nothing in your house apart from what is beautiful and what is practical. And oh, it, oh, it, it fortunately has uh, both those uh, uses there. So you can have it in your house and uh, make lots of things. Should we both make a, a, a dish from it before we do our next podcast, Josie? Yes. And also, yes. I cannot urge how much, if you're listening to this, get it for your family member who is, says that they're not political but loves to eat like i feel like this is the way to turn your family member who says they're not political but loves to eat into somebody who thinks about politics and cares <laughs> so there we go. brilliant thank you so much for joining us yes thanks lovely to chat yeah thanks brilliant. so much thank you. i really appreciate you doing it thanks for listening Hope you enjoyed the show. Rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out. Patreon.com slash bookshamble. Sign up there. That also really helps us out. Back next week with another new episode. Hope you'll join us then. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.